Hello, and welcome to this special series of episodes called 29 Days of Magic. During Black History Month, the month of February, I'll be interviewing a Black woman a day who's from business and entrepreneurship. You name it, I'm going to have a chat with her. The idea for this is to show off the amazingness of Black women throughout various industries. I hope you take a listen, like, share, review, and be inspired by these incredible stories. Take a listen. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Munoz, CEO of the Cultural Communications Agency, D-Flash. Each episode, I bring a different business leader, entrepreneur, awesome, amazing person who's doing great work. And this episode is no different. I am so excited to have Candace Parker, who's a mom, WNBA player, and broadcaster. Um, we're going to talk all things sports, business, technology. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. Take a listen. Hey, Candace. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Um, so you know how this works. The first question is always the same. Um, I'm going to be fascinated by your answer. So Candace, what was your first job? Wow. So I absolutely love kids. It's always been, I'm the youngest. And so I never got the opportunity to be like the big sibling. So I was always super jealous of my brothers for having, you know, little siblings. So I was always babysitting. That was my first real, you know, job. Um, I was like the, the on-call babysitter for our entire neighborhood. Um, <laughs> honestly, even in college, I was babysitting for, you know, different, uh, you know, teachers, children or coaches, children. Um, I was the kid that would rather babysit kids than go to a party or a dance or anything like that. So that was actually what? my favorite. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite job. I love kids. I don't know. It's just something they're hilarious. So I, I really enjoyed doing that. Wow. Well, you know, taking care of kids and making sure that they're going to be okay, sort of prepared you for life. Uh, so that, that was helpful. So, okay. So we go from being an awesome babysitter to multi-hyphenate awesome women today. Like what was that career journey like? The career, I feel as though, you know, I always played basketball um, growing up. I played basketball, I played soccer, um, and I always was involved in some way in a team situation and in a team environment. And, you know, I think that transition from babysitting and, and kids and things like that kind of transitioned into family and team. And I think in a lot of situations, we're understanding now how important it is to learn how to work in a team, uh, whether it's a family environment and employment, whatever. Um, and right now I kind of do, I play, you know, professional basketball, but also I'm a part of TNT and Turner sports and NBA TV, uh, broadcasting. And that's a team where you have to work with producers and, you know, fellow analysts and, um, show hosts and things like that. And so, I think it just kind of prepared me for communication. I think the big part of it, it was just learning how to communicate from an early age and, and, you know, obviously trying to get better at it as time went on. Awesome. And so obviously, you know, playing in WNBA, you know, you know, that's a, a whole other road to the, you know, people want to play sports and then actually people who make it to the professional league. Like what was you think kind of the biggest change for you from going from college to professional? In college, you are the coaches and the school's responsibility. So they care about your successes. They care about your failures. They care whether you're getting a, a C or a B in your class because it directly impacts them. Right. Personally, I feel as though it's more so 
you're individually trying to succeed. It's a profession, it's a job. So whether you eat pregame, it doesn't impact them. It impacts your career. It impacts, you know, your performance. Um, and so I think it was a huge adjustment just in learning. Nobody's making you do anything as a professional, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> uh, you have to be responsible for yourself. Oh, damn. You have to be responsible for yourself. And in college, you're kind of catered to, and they're making sure you're in class, you know, you're sitting in the first three rows. And so those type of behaviors and, um, morals and values are kind of instilled in you from, you know, childhood into college. And then in the pros, you can kind of figure out which ones work for you, you know? And, um, I think that's the biggest transition when you're going from college to professional. So you've gotten to, you know, all right, now you're so responsible for yourself and you're playing on, and you're playing on a team. What's, what's been one of the things that like, you know, I never thought I'd find my way through this because this challenge is insane. And then you did. Personally, my biggest, I would say, um, achievement and my biggest challenge has been, I, I became a, a mom at 23 years old. I finished my rookie season and then I was pregnant with my daughter during my rookie season. And then I had her right before my second year. So professionally, I was trying to learn how to adjust, take care of myself while also taking care of my daughter. And I think the biggest challenge has been growing in my sport and growing in my career while also growing, you know, as a mom. And I never wanted to sacrifice my family for my career or vice versa. And I think you can do both. And so that was my whole entire mission at 23 when everyone told me I wasn't going to be able to do it was to balance both and, and be there for my daughter but also, you know, have a successful career. Yeah, so let's talk about that because I think, you know, there's so much pressure on what you're supposed, quote unquote, supposed to do versus what you can do. What were some of the things where you're like, no, I'm gonna make this work? I was adamant about nursing. I feel as though I wanted to give my daughter um, what I thought was, best for her just because of our schedule. We travel so much. Um, I read up on nursing and that's what I wanted to do, you know, and every mom is different in their desires and wants and needs and abilities. And I decided that I wanted to nurse her and everyone was like, it's not going to work. It's not possible. And I think that was one thing I dug my heels on. And it's hilarious. The stories that have come of it, you know, we'll sit at halftime and you know, my, my, my daughter's father would bring me <laughs> her and I would nurse at halftime. Oh my gosh. Wow. Really? Yeah, oh. Going over plays and nursing. And then I'd have to switch. Cause you know, you got to switch boobs and I'd go to the other one <laughs> while still seamlessly talking about a play. Um, and I nursed her solely. She never had formula for 13 months. And while wow. it's you give your daughter formula, that is perfectly fine. You can give your kid that I was a formula baby. I turned out fine. I just love that bond that I had with her. And I didn't want to, as a first time mom, not do something I wanted to do as a result of my career. And so we made it work. Um, and honestly, it's so funny because she nursed so long. I mean, she's already really tall. So she looked like she was almost three years old when we, <laughs> when we stopped nursing. But that's something that I feel as though, like, I'm so happy that I didn't, you know, I tried it. And if it wouldn't have worked, you know, we would have figured something else out, but it, it, it did work and um, it worked for both of us. 
And I think that's the thing that we have to remember is that like, one, we as women can figure it out, but it's also having an organization or, or a company that is like, okay, this is what you want to do. We're actually going to adapt versus making your life you know, difficult, which oftentimes is the case for many women in business. Yes, it's um, unfortunately, I feel as though it, the burden always falls um, on the mom and women. And to be honest with you, I've noticed that just within my career, even in the way that we speak about kids, there's a number of questions that I would get even on the road today as an 11 year old, my daughter's 11, where is your daughter? Who's taking care of them? Uh-huh. You know, one of the questions I asked back to the reporter was, do you ask Steph Curry this question? Do you ask, LeBron, do you ask LeBron James this question? Who's taking care of their kids at this moment? So I think the perception um, and, you know, w- what has always been in the workplace um, is, is changing slowly, but at the same time, there's still a lot of things that need to be done. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a, a huge issue right now because, you know, we're obviously in this really crazy time of COVID. Um, it's affecting more working moms and it is working affecting um, working dads. Like, how has that been for you? Because obviously, you know, you guys have to go into a bubble. Yes, the bubble actually was unbelievable for us. I, I think I was able to have my family there with me. And I think that impacted my experience there in that we had been in quarantine basically for three months leading up to the bubble. The bubble was freedom. You know, we were oh, able really? to, people, like, if you think about it, we were in a bubble with people that had were tested every day. So we were That's able true. to have people over to our apartment. We cooked, we had taco Tuesday nights. We had TikTok nights. My daughter could get on her bike. It was, you know, on a campus. So I didn't worry, you know, when she was riding her bike with, with one of her little friends in the bubble. So we actually had a great experience. Um, they were able to go to the games and I wasn't traveling. So I was home every night. Um, so honestly, I can't lie. The experience actually wasn't as bad as other than my dogs, not being able to be there. Um, the experience, ah. yeah, wasn't as bad as, as some others. And, you know, looking back on, you know, obviously last year was, you know, not just COVID, but um, we had, you know, the protests that happened over the summer where basically it forced um, every industry to be like, oh, actually there is this thing called racism. We weren't kidding about this. Um, and obviously the WNBA, you all are just so phenomenal in the way that you, you stand up and you stand and you actually make change. Like what was probably the, the biggest lesson that you, you got out of, of last year? That we are, I have so much hope. And I say this not um, not disregarding all of the things that we've yet to accomplish, but in saying that in less than a generation's time, if you think about when you look back at Jim Brown and you look back at you know um, Bill Russell, you look back at a Muhammad Ali, th- these were individual athletes having a summit and coming together and demanding change and bringing attention to the need to address racism. Now we have entire leagues. Um, This summer really spoke to me in the fact that there's a lot of individuals that know things are wrong, but just because things have always been done that way, they continue to do them. And with that being said, 
that goes along the lines of just changing that, like knowing that something is wrong and not doing it or demanding change is important. And I use the flag as an example. In 2017, we didn't come out of the locker room, the WNBA finals, we got booed. There are people that chose to kneel. There's people that chose to stand. And if you, if you knelt, you were in the wrong. Now, fast forward three years to 2020, and people were calling out people that did not kneel for the flag. So in a three-year span, this act, this perception of what this act meant changed dramatically. And an entire generation, now not just one or two or three athletes are coming together, entire leagues are coming together. So I think what 2020 told me was just because things have always been done a certain way, it doesn't mean that they're right. And we have to continue to move forward and not just be hung up on that for years. And so um, I really am filled with a lot of hope for this next generation that they'll make even bigger steps and we're going to continue to do what we can do in the process, you know, even in the WNBA. You know, that's so true because I think people seem to forget, you know, I saw a quote that was really interesting. It was about the fact that like, we don't see enough of the Martin Luther King photographs in color because by showing them in black and white, it makes people think it was like a hundred years ago when it was the sixties. And so, you know, there was color back then. And so it's not that long ago that we went from like, we didn't have equal rights until 1965. We're now in 2021 we were talking about less than 60 years. And when you quantify that and realize how much it has to be adapted and changed and generations of people who will never change, um, we've come a long way. And even again, in the last five years, um, it's, it's, it's been such a drastic change. And you know, last summer, again, forced everyone to pay attention largely because people were finally at home. And so you couldn't look away. You couldn't say, well, I don't know about this or I had no idea or, you know, maybe he did something wrong. Maybe she did something wrong. That's why the police shot at her. Like, no, there's video. Um, and you can no longer turn your head and pretend like you're, you're, part, you're not listening to and be part of the problem. You have to be part of the solution. And so I would agree that it's so, it's so important to have hope and then, um, and then act on that hope. It's so important to have hope and act on that hope, but it's also, there's a reality in all of this as well. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household where I was exposed to so many different things. And my father and my mother, it wasn't teaching just from school. It was at home. It was learning about your history, where you came from, being proud of it, but also the lies that society tells us and the lies that they want us to believe to continue the system that's already in place. And whether, you know, the, the black squares were true in which people really did self-reflecting, I think it's now, it's these, it's these months that are gonna determine whether all the things that we said back in June, in May, in July, all those things are gonna be sustainable. And all of those things are actually going to, to come to life. And I think it's these months where, you know, I always use this example, like in training camp, everybody shows up on the first day early, right? First day of the job, you show up early, get your work in, do what you're supposed to. But how is day number one any more important than day 20 when you're working towards a season or, or in a career? And I think that's where we as a society have to understand, like today is important. 
all those feelings, they're still there. <laughs> and we, we still have to continue to do something about it. We absolutely do. And it's like, and one step in front of the other. Um, and, you know, and also holding people accountable. It's like for all those folks who put the black squares up, okay, we're six months down the road. What have we done? Was that performative allyship or are you actually taking some steps to make some meaningful and real action? Um, and it goes beyond Black History Month. Like, what are you doing every day, every month to actually start making some meaningful and lasting change? What are, yeah, individuals. And I think it, it, it's not that you have to have all the money in the world and it's not like you have to have the biggest platform. I've seen the people that I've had the most respect for. I work with an organization, the Social Change, Change Fund that I'm a part of with Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony and Dwayne Wade. And it's been interesting to meet the individuals that go door to door for people to register to vote. Like they're having a tremendous impact in America. And I think we think of people as just having millions of followers or millions of dollars or whatever, that they're the only ones that can really make an impact. And it's not. Um, I think everybody can kind of step in and, and make a difference in some way. And it might not affect thousands and thousands of people, but, you know, it, it will help in what, what is trying to be accomplished here. Yeah, you're, I think you're so right. I mean, there are so many wonderful organizations who, you know, were driving people to the polls, driving, you know, driving the elderly black people out to the polls in Georgia. Like, you know, every, everyone sort of kind of, you know, got, has, has a thing that they can do. And it doesn't have to be affecting millions. You can affect hundreds. It's like, we're seeing this now you know, with, you know, vaccines and getting testing and like the, all the inequities. And then there are all these wonderful nonprofits that have come up and say, listen, we're going to help. And so, you know, I think it's the choice to try and do something good and that your impact goes farther than you ever know, even if you think you're just helping one or two people. So it, it's great to see um, how we can find ways to expand. So now you've kind of done a foray into broadcasting. What's that, how is that different um, when you're on the other side of it, instead of like being on the court, now broadcasting and talking about what you're seeing on the court? It's different, but I, I always say that <laughs> broadcasting is the second best job in the world that I <laughs> want. I, I absolutely love playing about playing basketball. And I think there's a lot of people that do that in their free time. And when your job can be something that people do for fun, I think you're, you know, you're lucky. And the same thing, everybody talks about basketball at some point on their couch. And that's all I've done growing up. I am a basketball <laughs> fiend. I love <laughs> basketball. Um, and with that being said, I would do it anyway. So when the opportunity came where they were going to pay me to talk about basketball, I was like, I feel like, where do I sign? Like, yes, I'm getting over on you. Like <laughs> I do this. Anyway. Um, and so awesome. it was a dream job. It still is. I still have to pinch myself and realize that I'm up there with my idols that I grew up watching play that I talked about on my couch, sitting with my brothers and my dad and my mom. Like I have to pinch myself um, that I'm on shows with these guys. So it really, I think, was uh, an adjustment, but 
something that I really enjoyed because I've always done it. So it's authentic. And I think anytime you're able to be authentic and what you love and who you are and all that stuff within your job, then it, it's, you know, it brings out the best. Oh, absolutely. It's, and of course, cause now I'm going to get nerdy and cause I love basketball just as much. Um, what is, what was your team growing up and what was your favorite play? I was the absolute biggest Bulls fan. That same, same. In your like I, yes. And uh, when I tell you, I love the Bulls. I mean, I grew up in the Chicagoland area. I grew up in Naperville and everything was the Bulls. Like the expectation to think about it, they won championships during the nineties. And that was when, like, ever since I was five, it was just like the Bulls won a championship. The Bulls, the Bulls won again, yeah. Grant Park, great. Like it was just expected, you know? Um, and so I grew up a Bulls fan. Obviously everybody was a Michael Jordan fan. I loved Ron Harper. So I was a big Ron Harper ah. fan. Um, really like BJ Armstrong. Those same. Two oh my gosh. Yeah. My parents both went to Iowa. So we had the BJ Armstrong connection. Um, but yeah, so those were my favorite. I still am a Bulls fan. I'm excited to be headed back home to, to play in the WNBA this year. Cause there's nothing like Chicago in the summer. Um, and Chicagoland, just in terms of sports, they just embrace basketball. Yeah. I, I, even though I grew up, obviously I'm a New Yorker, but, um, obviously I, I was the only one against my family who loved the Bulls. My brothers were all Knicks fans because like those are the names when the Knicks had, you know, Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason. And, you know, it was a different kind of basketball. <laughs> um, <laughs> It, and I missed that. I, it's funny. Like I was reading something that like, you know, what players would still be, play, would, would thrive in this era of basketball that were like in the nineties. And I'm like, I don't know who, cause like, like everyone would be broken in half trying to get into the paint. Uh, but yeah, I, I was a huge Bulls fan and obviously Michael Jordan fan. And um, I actually, I loved Horace Grant and Bill Cartwright because like, these are these guys who were just, you know, they just were the guys. And even though they were, they were some quote unquote supporting roles, you know, they made the team, they got the rebounds, they dove into the stands. It was like, yeah, it was like the best, uh, the, be the best of basketball back then. I don't know, obviously, I, obviously I watched the last dance like twice. <laughs> and it's so different from, it's so different from the way you saw it back then, you know, like it was interesting for me to see it kind of as an adult because as a right. kid, just like, oh, Scotty didn't, you know, like he didn't come out of the timeout. Who cares? But then to like hear the story behind why he didn't come out to the timeout. Like, like almost like, dying. Like, yeah. yeah, like it's just all the behind the behind the stories. It's also fascinating to see what the world looks like when there isn't social medias and cell phones. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's just like you just think about that, like, wait a minute, like. Dennis Rodman just rolled up to Las Vegas and was just like, yep, I'm going to be gone for a couple of days with Carmel Electra. And everyone's like, yeah, like Dennis is going to be Dennis. He'll come back. We'll be fine. And as opposed to like now, you'd probably see his viral TikTok of being at well, being on the top of Pure in Vegas. So um, it's a different, it's, it's just, it's so different to see, but I think it's important for us to see because like, you know, that those stories you know we need to tell those stories and hear those stories and understand context because I think a lot of times we get 
one end of the story and not the full one and so that kind of shapes our opinions so it's it's cool to look back and see and see how it how it really was so true so true and so you know obviously last year has been bananas and like and obviously you're a working mom um what in the world do you do for self-care <laughs> Um, okay, so I am very adamant about my time when I work out. So my daughter knows when I work out, I have a little workout, you know, place in my house. When I am in there, that is my time. So whether I'm on the Peloton, whether I am doing yoga or Pilates or just working out with my trainer, whatever that is, that is my time and I'm selfish with it. Good. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me is we write all of these meetings in our, in our calendars. And those are meetings that we have to make, right? They're in our calendar at 10 o'clock. I have this at one o'clock. I have this, whatever. But we don't carve out that same time for us as individuals. And so as a mom, I really carve out time. I love to read. I love reading. And so you know, whether it's 20 minutes here or 20 minutes there or 30 minutes, we have a family calendar. So my daughter knows, you know, what my schedule is and things like that. And so we're really trying to do a better job of carving out that time, you know, as her, okay, you need 30 minutes to go do TikToks. Cool. <laughs> That's your time. <laughs> That's your time. That's your time. We're going to plan it out. Or, you know, we have family movie night or something like that. So we do carve out time to spend together, but also individually, I think it's so important as you know a parent and to show them that is it's important to take care of yourself and you're so right it's you know you we we, we get so overscheduled, and like I always make stuff I like live by my calendar if it's not my calendar it didn't exist mm -hmm. um and when the co when COVID first hit I had like an hour a day of like Laura time and like I where I would do nothing or I go read or you know do some meditation and that worked for the first few months of COVID and then it just didn't <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, I tried I tried so true um, we're so excited to have Soho Works as the sponsor for the 29 Days of Magic campaign you know they're designed by Soho House and their workspaces to help Creative thinkers, businesses small and large, connect, collaborate, and grow. And it's where I'm recording all the episodes of 29 Days of Magic. It's a safe, wonderful, and collaborative experience. Uh, I'm currently in the Brooklyn location, but they have locations, one else in New York City, in the Meatpacking District, one in LA, five in the UK. And they give you that kind of home away from home feeling with all the tools, technology, equipment to help you do your best work. Uh, like I said, it's an amazing location feel safe. I've you know, been able to meet some really awesome people, which haven't been able to do a lot because of the fact of COVID. So it's been a wonderful experience being able to re record here and help build community. So if you want to find out more information about it, please go to SohoWorks.com to get more information and tell them I sent you. And now back to the show. Uh, what, what are you currently reading? So I'm currently reading Range. Um, it's a really good book. It's kind of along the lines of just... Um, having more experience in different, uh, lines of work. So I think it just speaks to like versatility and, you know, bringing in the crafts that you learned when you were younger, um, into your profession. So I think I've, I like reading like a lot of those type of books. Um, 
I actually got a number because all my friends know I love books. So they brought me a bunch of them for Christmas. So I think the next book I'm going to read is Cast. Ah. It's on yeah, the Oprah Book Club. So we're going to read that as a group. Yeah. And so that's, that's a, yeah, that's a good, that's the one I think that I'll read next. And then I'm really into like autobiographies. So, um, my daughter reads some for school and I'll read them along with her. Uh, I just finished the autobiography of Cicely Dyson. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. I, I, I literally, I bought it. And then I was trying to figure out, like, I have a friend who, who was friends with her. And I was trying to figure out, like, is she going to do anything kind of in person? Because if she would, I would love to meet her. Uh, mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, she, so I had on free order and then like it arrived like the day after she passed away. And I'm like, man. Oh, um, so then I had to devour the book. Like I just, it is such a beautiful narrative and she just tells such a glamorous and beautiful story, but in a way that's so humble, it's, yeah, it's a fantastic book. I love, I love autobiographies that um, are still self-help, you know, like I love when somebody writes for, even though they're writing about themselves, they write for others. And I think that that's been the, you know, the best autobiographies and biographies that I've written. I actually have added um, one of my favorites during quarantine. I read um, Michael Eric Dyson's Jay-Z because I'm a huge Jay-Z fan. So I read his his Jay-Z book and it just, speaks to you know why isn't he considered one of the best poets that our world has ever seen because that's exactly what he is but it, it right. goes to the culture and I just love those type of you know those type of books so um I'm gonna have to add that book to my to my list yeah yeah I don't, don't want to give it away but like it's I mean it's just it's like you know you're in like you're you're, you're in your grandmother's like kitchen and mm-hmm. she's just like cooking something on the fire and you're just sitting there just listening going oh my god yeah uh, and I think you know that's the thing that's really you know impactful especially for black women is that like she definitely she carried she always carried herself as this like wow like she is the woman <laughs> like you can, yeah. you, can you can feel that even on screen uh and it's it's lovely to see how it's sort of translated into the page so uh mm. I definitely recommend um you will it, it'll you'll read it fast you're like oh I must keep on reading <laughs> um, those are always the best ones so you know looking back on all the really amazing things that you've been able to accomplish um what do you think you tell 25 year old Kansas oh my goodness 25 <laughs> year old Candace, I would tell her to be a better listener I would tell her that it's okay if you don't have the answers. It's okay to experience things because honestly, the cliche phrase of life is the greatest teacher is really true. We think at every stage of life, we have it figured out and we have no idea and it's okay. Um, I think that I would tell the 25 year old Candace that you know, to continue to, to make changes and to continue to try to try to grow and, um, and do the things that are, that you feel is right. I think you follow your heart. There's so many times at 25 years old that I didn't want to tell other people, no, I didn't want to disappoint them. So in the Mm -hmm. same sense, 
because I didn't want to disappoint them, I ended up hurting myself and I ended up being miserable myself. And that's not a way to live, you know? Um, So I think those are the key messages that I would tell myself. And um, I think now I'm at a place where at 25, like I said, you think you have it all figured out. And I've hit this like enlightenment at 30 and I know the enlightenment at 40 will probably be even crazier. Um, But right now I'm just really happy. And I think it's just because of, you know, the barriers and the ups and downs that I I went through before this, I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be. So I, uh, I would think my 25 year old self, because I think the mistakes I made then have allowed me to kind of grow to, to who I am and what I'm doing now. That's awesome. Hey, yo, listening is just a thing that when we were 25, we're like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you listen, but I don't know. I think you're more hearing. I don't think you're listening at 25. No, you know, you are, you, it's in one year out there like, oh, okay, great. And then it, but it doesn't get absorbed. It just kind of goes in and out. Um, but actively listening, like I remember I was, I think, 27 or 28 and I went to a, a business conference I met this amazing black woman who was an executive and um, I got to have some time and chat with her um, and and I was like you know what's the one thing uh, that you think I should like take away from this and she's like learn how to listen because you don't know how to listen um, oh. uh, and I was like oh and, I was, and it resonated because like, okay, here's this one black woman who's like running this entire like giant department of like a hundred people. Everyone is scared, but awed by her. I should probably take a good lesson out of that. <laughs> like, <laughs> she said that, she's probably on to something, just maybe. Uh, and then last question for you, uh, do you have a give and or an ask of the audience? So this could be anything from, hey, another book recommendation to um, everyone should meditate. Like it can be anything you want. Ooh, that is a good one. I think my ask of the audience, because a lot of the thing that wakes me up every single day is equality. And I understand that within society, um, you know, we have a challenge. We have a challenge in establishing that and figuring that out. Um, but for me, it is racial, but it's also um, gender related as, as you can um, relate to. I think a lot of times that we tell our girls and we tell our ladies and we tell our women, we tell our moms, we tell our sisters and our friends and our daughters that they can do and be everything and anything they want to be. But we don't tell our sons that girls, women, mothers, ladies, friends, sisters can do and be anything they want to be. And I think that there's a huge gap. And so I guess my ask is um, continuing to empower young women and women to be able to do these things, but also encouraging men to move over, scoot over from the table. Not asking you to back up, just move over a little bit and make room and understand the beauty in making room for somebody that may be different or look different. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's an ask. I think it's more of uh, just to be, to realize it, realize how important and how crucial it is to have other people at the table that look different making decisions on a daily basis. 
That's fantastic. Um, it's kind of both, <laughs> um, which is great. And it's also like super timely because I recently saw uh, some viral tweet and it was basically like, you know, um, we tell girls that, you know, they mature faster than boys and so they have to have like, you know, be understanding of, uh, of boys. Um, but we never tell our sons um, m girls mature faster than them. And so you have to be understanding and, um, of girls. And it's like, yeah, like, hey, we're different. This is great. Um, it's actually good if we have diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, um, and the world isn't just made for men. It is super crucial. This is why a lot of the times when we do panels for Women's History Month or we do things like that, I encourage us to have men, like a woman's summit is thought of as just women attending, but we need men as well. Like we need allies, just as we realized in 2020, the need for our white citizens to step up and say that black lives matter. It's the same, it holds more weight when a man says it's important to hear a woman's voice or it's, I mean, whether we wanna admit it or believe in it or not. We can't do this, you're, you know, we can't do this all ourselves. And so I think it is taking that. Also, I would like to make this point, and my brother is one of my biggest supporters and we talk on a daily basis and he in no way disrespects or feels, you know, women can't do, he thinks women can do everything a man can do. And I think in language, we found out how important it is and how, how language is tied into our system as well. And if you think about just going back in history, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but like Don't the, the, you know, calling, calling men boys, but women are called girls all the time. Forever. You can Forever. be a group of women in their sixties and like, Hey girls, hello, golden girls. Hey girls. And these are men in power calling women girls. And I don't think anybody today sees anything wrong with it, but in 20, 30 years, they're going to look back and they're going to see, you know, and I can go on and on about the B word. I, I listen, like we don't have all day. So I, <laughs> I can go on and on about that. But at the same time, I think that when you change and my brother, like I said, is one of the most respectful thing. He said, I never thought of it that way. I never knew that. Like I am going to make a conscious effort to not call women girls because in some way it is demeaning. It is degrading. It is, it may not be looked at in that way, just as before when people would casually use boy or whatever, it wasn't looked at that way. That's just the way things are, but it doesn't have to be the way things will be. And so I think that it's so important to kind of change the way we speak um, about each other. The normal picture absolutely has to change and I think that's so important or it's like yeah no you can't a bunch of successful women who are sitting around a table and you're like hey girls what do you want for dinner like no it's it just doesn't work and you wouldn't do it to a man it's like the same way that they should ask LeBron where, where who's watching his kids they shouldn't ask you who's watching your kids yeah. um like that's you know that's how we have to kind of get to this point or when it gets asked for a man to be like, we wouldn't ask this at somebody else. So like, we're not asking this to Candace. Like that's, you know, those at little, what I think are little aspects are actually key to getting, you know, fixing the next generation um, because of the way that we speak. And then, you know, 
of thinking of it as in person first language and, and, and how you respond to people. So, you know, sort of guys, just use folks. <laughs> um, you know, there's so many ways that like, you know, people, words can disempower and empower. Uh, and the more that we're mindful and conscious of it, which is great that your brother is just conscious of it. Cause once you're conscious of it, you know, you'll know to catch yourself when you make that mistake. Uh, and it's not about cancel culture or any, any of that foolishness. It's just like acknowledge that this is not the way things um, should be said now in 2021 uh, and move forward. And, you know, and it doesn't have to become like a long drawn out conversation about it. Just change your language. I think you change your language, but with that, you have to also realize that if we're able to actively speak our bias and not know it, we have other things that we need to go back in the mirror and realize that we're, we're consciously doing, <laughs> you know, oh, and yeah. diversity of thought and limiting people based off what they can, what you think they can and cannot achieve. Um, I always laugh because I feel like as though in society, especially black women, we're put into a box. And then the people that decided to put us in the box that they wanted us to be in get mad when we don't fit into that box. Bingo. <laughs> and it just blows my mind. It's almost comical. Um, you know, how many times, and sometimes they think it's a positive way. You know, you speak so well. Well, why wouldn't I? You know, I just, I don't know why I wouldn't speak well. I don't get, I don't, you know. So you I can think, do all uh, these other things. We had, we didn't, we just thought you knew how to shoot a basketball. Like, really? Exactly. Like, I didn't go to college. Right. <laughs> Exactly. So I think um, some of that has to do with, um, you know, just seeing it more and being exposed. I think social media will help people travel that wouldn't have ordinarily traveled and been able to be able to see different people in different positions. And um, I think that's so important. See more and change. <laughs> and learn. Just simple stuff. <laughs> learn. That's all we ask. Just but yeah, it's true that I think, and you know, it's also kind of part of the reason that you know I did the series because you know, I didn't go out to try and find like the number one black woman who's an astronaut or whatever. I just like, I just want to find really awesome black women everywhere, uh, and have them tell their stories. I don't have to put any parameters around that because, you're right. There's this box they think that we all live in, and you know, by showing that like it's a beautiful mosaic of women across a whole you know, cadre of industries. You know, we don't fit anywhere because, you know, we are, we are beautiful flowers and like they can bloom in different ways. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of the magic of you know, doing this series to kind of show that no one belongs in a box. Let us just bloom. I love it. Awesome. So Candace, you are just so wonderful. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, uh, we'll put all the details in the show notes um, for folks to connect with you, follow you on Instagram and all that good stuff uh, uh, and your book recommendations as well. Uh, but thank you so much for being part of 29 Days of Magic. Thank you so much for having me and please stay in touch. You have my email and um, I really appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Thank you so much. And that is our show.